our membership over the course of the next 12 weeks. Uh, we're going to be taking slow looks at this precious uh, gospel. And so if you were with us last week, we looked at the gospel of Luke, uh, looked at an overview of the gospel of Luke. And this week, then we're tasked with the responsibility uh, to apply the gospel of Luke. And uh, as we do this, maybe this word picture will be help for us, helpful for us in, in understanding uh, this vast and glorious gospel. Um, I've had the opportunity to fly to Africa a few times on mission trips. And as I fly over there, one of the, two of the uh, destinations that I fly over, one uh, are the Swiss Alps, the other the Sahara Desert. And so you can imagine elevated 30,000 feet or higher, just how huge these, um, these two things look like. And, and so I don't, I've never timed in the, in the time of the plane. Usually it's the early, early morning hours where my, my mind and uh, my uh, alertness is still somewhere over the ocean. Um, but I've never timed to see how, how long it takes uh, to cover that in a, in a flight. But it'd be far different for us looking at it from that vantage point than it would be if we were to walk across the desert or if we were to try to hike the Alps. And I think that's kind of maybe a, a hopefully a helpful example or word picture for us to understand what we're doing in these two weeks with the Gospel of Luke. We've got the we've got the elevated from the plain view. We're trying to see it as a whole, and and we're not going to be able to uh, stop in every peak and just stay there and just look and and just marvel at the vastness of what we're able to see from this from this peak, or even be amazed at just the the, the largeness of a drive. And dusty desert. But hopefully what's going to take place over the next 12 weeks is we'll be able to stop. We'll be able to get to every one of those lookouts. And we'll be able to explore the depths of Christ. And we'll be able to marvel at Jesus Christ. It's, it's helpful as we've been doing with Hebrews. We've been going along inch by inch, word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. And it's like getting out of the car at every single lookout. And stopping and looking at this same Grand Canyon mountain range and just being able to say, look, it's the same one, but look how beautiful it is from this view. And as wonderful as that is, it's also helpful at times as well to be able to see the, the elevated view of something. And so that's what we're doing with Christ today in this Gospel of Luke. Every sermon that's preached about Jesus ought to be a sermon where not only the preacher, but every person who is listening to this sermon ought to be brought into exulting in the gospel. And so it's, this is, I want to invite you to worship with me today in the preaching of Christ from the gospel of Luke, but maybe to do so in somewhat of a, a unique way. I don't know if you're accustomed to maybe taking notes. Uh, maybe you like to jot some things down from the sermon, some things to, to remember and recall. But I just want to encourage all of us maybe to put the pen down today and just listen. And just listen, because what I hope to do over the next several minutes is just not I don't want to say walk. I don't want to be deceptive and say walk us through this entire gospel. We're going to run through this entire gospel. And I, 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 I fear that if we try to write things down, we're going to miss uh, a lot of things. And just just understand that whatever you want to write down, um, we're, we're going we're gonna to spend time in our small group studying these, so ample time uh, will be there for us to be able to go through uh, this gospel at a, at a slower pace. Last week we looked at, um, just to give a brief recap, we looked at all the things that we believe God wanted Theophilus to know about Jesus Christ. And you remember what, um, what Luke was saying as he was writing these things to Theophilus, he said, I uh, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. So he wanted Theophilus to know the exact truth concerning Jesus Christ. He didn't want him to be, he wanted him to be clear on these things. And so we looked at what some of these truths were through the Gospel of Luke. He wanted him to be clear, know the exact truth about God. He wanted him to know the exact truth about Jesus, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, 
that Jesus is king, that he's the horn of salvation. Wanted to see how he relates to God as father. That Jesus is the son of Adam. That Jesus is greater than Jonah and Solomon. That Jesus is the son of man. That Jesus is referred to as a teacher. He wanted Theophilus to be clear on the gospel. He wanted him to know with exact truth of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He wanted him to know that salvation is in Christ alone through faith and repentance. He wanted him to be clear on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He wanted him to bask in the reality that salvation had now gone to the Gentiles. He wanted to know that suffering was part of God's redemptive plan. He wanted him to know what it looked like to have a new community in Christ, what Christ has done on the cross in breaking down the barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile, and even greater than that, the barrier that existed between mankind and a holy God. He wanted him to know the appropriate and proper way to respond to this Jesus. First and foremost, overarching through all of that, he didn't want him to miss Christ. What a terrible reality to have this holy word before us and to miss who this word is about. It's frightening. Don't miss him. But take hope, take heart that he doesn't want you to miss him. So this week we're going to, Lord willing, look at, going to labor in the application of what God wants known about this Jesus Christ. So our outline this week, four points with a whole bunch of subpoints underneath. So here's, here's the, the quick outline. Number one, birth, genealogy, and early years of Jesus. Secondly, we'll look at the ministry, Christ's ministry in Galilee. Thirdly, we'll look at uh, his ministry as he's on the way to Jerusalem. The cross is in view. And then uh, at last, we'll look at the cross, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Join with me in prayer again. God, we, we pray that you would help us. Help, help this not to be a jumbled mess. Um, Lord, help, this, help us to worship you as we look at your glorious son through his word. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So point one, the birth genealogy and early years of Jesus. Chapter uh, one through chapter four, verse 13. So what does God want us to know about this Jesus Christ? Well, first and foremost, he wants us, or first before this, he, he lets us know of the birth of John the Baptist. He wants to know, he wants us to know about the birth of John, who was born of Zacharias and the formerly barren Elizabeth, that this birth preceded the birth of Jesus Christ. And when Mary visited Elizabeth, he wants us to know that John leapt while he was in Mary's womb, saying this in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14 through 17. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. God wants us to know about the birth of his glorious son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus, this Messiah was born and he was laid in a manger. Worship with me in chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
He wanted us to hear about how Simeon responded to the birth of this Messiah. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And he wanted us to know Anna, the prophetess's response, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, who was advanced in years and to live with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. God wants us to know that at the age of 12, Jesus knew his intended place, that he had to be in his father's house. He wanted to know of the ministry of John the Baptist, which preceded the publicly, public ministry of Christ, in which John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance through the forgiveness of sins and signified that there was one greater than he, saying this in John chapter 3, 15 through 17. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered to them and said, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. He wants us to know, God wants us to know that Jesus was baptized. The Trinity was present and active. And that God was well pleased. He goes into the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ. He wants to see that in the temptation of Christ, he wants us to see Christ's humanity. He wants us to see his impeccability, that he did not have the capacity to sin. He wants to show us how to fight temptation using the word of God. What was his response when Satan told him to turn the stone to bread? Man shall not live by bread alone but from every word that proceeds from the Father. Quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He wants us to be familiar with the Old Testament as Jesus is familiar with the Old Testament. What about his response when Satan said, worship me? He said, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What about his response when Satan said, throw yourself down from the temple? What about the response when Satan quoted scripture? It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He wants us to see that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And being full of the Holy Spirit, we enter into point number two, his Galilean ministry. Chapter four, verses 14 through chapter nine, verse 50. Jesus enters Galilee full of the Holy Spirit. And he was teaching in synagogues and being praised by those who were around him. And then on this day, as was accustomed to the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth, And the scroll was handed to him. And guess where he turned? That's right. He turned to Isaiah. And what did he read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And then you hear what happens right after this. And he said to them, no doubt you're going to quote this proverb to me. 
Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there are many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up, drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. He wants us to see that his teaching is with authority and that he can say, be quiet and come out of him to a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. He wants us to know that Jesus is Lord and is in control over demons. They know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And they fear Him. He wants us to know that Jesus is Lord over sickness by rebuking the sickness of Simon's mother-in-law and healing various other sicknesses. And in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, that when the leper fell on his face imploring Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. To which Jesus responded to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And the leprosy immediately left him. He wants us to know that he took notice of the faith of the men who did whatever it took for their paralyzed friend to be near to Jesus. And we see Jesus drawing upon his omniscience later in chapter 5 when the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What a dumb question. What what an appropriate question, but a dumb one to ask Jesus, who is God? Jesus, aware of the reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins haven't been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But... So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. He wants us to see that Jesus clearly understood his mission. When day came, Jesus left, went to a secluded place. The crowds were searching for him and he came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God. To the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he kept right on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He wants us to know and see how it is that he prepares his disciples. The calling of Simon and James and John. Who were fishermen by trade. But now the Messiah was telling them they would become fishers of men pastoral application here what about you could it be that thus far god's been preparing you in your respected field to follow him in becoming a fisher of men maybe you've studied all of your life to be a doctor or a teacher or a pastor or you fill in the blank as a christian whatever it is that god has gifted us to do it has a much bigger purpose a global purpose than for the immediate effects of it. Keeping God's global view in mind. They were fishermen by trade. And now he was telling them, drop it all. Follow me. Is Christ worth this? He wants us to see that he calls a sinner, Levi, to follow him. And he wanted those grumbling Pharisees and scribes to know that it's Not the well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He gives us a parable of old cloth and new garments and new wine into old skins and wants us to know that no one who has Jesus wants his old life back. They're a new person. He wants us to know that he's Lord of the Sabbath. As he wanted his disciples and the self-righteous Pharisees to know that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He wants us to know that Jesus 
sought God all night regarding the disciples. He prayed all night seeking the face of God over and over and over in this glorious gospel. He invites us into his prayer closet to hear the prayers of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is inviting us into himself to hear how he prays and to pray likewise. And then when he has his disciples with him, he preaches to these disciples the greatest sermon ever heard. Preaching the Beatitudes. Following the Beatitudes, and there's, there's so, all of it is just so good. And he follows the teaching of the Beatitudes with, you must build on this foundation. And you must not call me Lord and then not do what I say to do. He wants us to see the faith of the centurion who himself is a man of authority, but in the presence of Jesus felt lowly and unworthy, even saying to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus said about this man, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And what about the widow whom Jesus had compassion for? He told her, don't weep. And then he said to her son, young man, I say to you, arise. What happened? The dead man sat up. The people glorified God saying, a great prophet is among us and God has visited his people. And what about when John the Baptist sent a little delegation to Jesus asking, are you the expected one? We looked at this a little bit last week. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So what do we take by that answer? Yes, I'm the expected one. Everything that Isaiah prophesied has been fulfilled in me. What he said earlier in Luke chapter 3. When the messengers of John had left him, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Saying, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those who are born of women, there is none, no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He wants us to see that in the parable of the two debtors, not only us, but Simon, for us to know what it is to have our debts, namely, specifically, our sins forgiven by this Jesus. To know this will produce an unrivaled love for Christ. He briefly mentions Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna as ladies who joyfully contributed to them out of their private means. He wants us to know from the parable of the sower and the seed that the seed that is sown is the word of God and that we should pray that this seed would be in good soil, that these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. He wants us to know from the parable of the lamp that he is the light of the world, that he is the one who exposes all things and brings them to light. He wants us to know that when his disciples became anxious about the storm, what it is to know that he is Lord over creation, that even the wind and the surging waves immediately obey his command. He wants us to know that he is Jesus, son of the most high God, Lord over the demons, He is the one that healed the demoniac, causing the demons to enter the swine and go and drown themselves. When the herdsmen saw this and found this man, that he was clothed and in his right mind, it caused fear among them. But what did this healed man do? He glorified God and proclaimed him throughout the entire city. He wants us to know that he is Jesus, Lord of the living. He is the one that grants believing faith. As the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched Jesus, this power that went out from Jesus, she believed Jesus. And he said, daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then he heals the daughter of the synagogue official saying, Child, arise. As he's sending out his twelve, he prepares to feed the five thousand. He tells his disciples to go out and tells them, take nothing for your journey. And what happens just a few moments later? Five thousand people are there at least and they need something to eat. What is he showing them? He's showing them that he and he alone is sufficient. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them, saying, who do the people who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. Some are saying Elijah. Others are saying one of the prophets of old is risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He calls us to join in the transfiguration when he wanted Peter, James, and John to see his glory and to hear God saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In point three, his face turns towards Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verses 51 through chapter 19. God wanted us to know what following Christ means. When his disciples mentioned things that they needed to do first before following him. He said in chapter 9, verse 60 and 62, Allow the dead to bear their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He wants us to, to, to know, he wants us to see that when he sent out the appointed 70, uh, his appointed 70 missionaries and he sent them out, he sent them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. But they were armed with God's promise that the harvest was plentiful and the promise that God's kingdom had come near. Warning Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum that it would be more tolerable for Sodom than for them because they rejected him and not listened and repented. He wanted these sent out ones to rejoice that their names had been recorded in heaven because all things, verses 22 through 24 state, have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son reveals, son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things that, which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus wanted his disciples to know. He wants us to know the answer to the question for the only way someone can inherit eternal life. Jesus answered them saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wants us to know from this parable of the Good Samaritan in teaching us what loving our neighbor in light of the love that God has displayed in Christ looks like. Consider the love that has been bestowed upon us by God in the compassion of Christ and how our sin ravages us and leaves us for death, but how God clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. We are to have compassion and we are to love others as those who are loved by this Jesus Christ. He wants us to see from the examples of Mary and Martha what's proper. 
Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which is what? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word. We need to heed this. We need to heed this. Our, our, our greatest responsibility in every day. Sit. At the feet of Jesus and listen to his word. He wants us to know what his response is to the disciples who requested for Jesus to teach them to pray. Then he gives a story of how someone receives what they were requesting from their friend because they are persistent even when it's late in the evening. Then he tells them in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 11. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Are we relentlessly, tirelessly, fervently asking our heavenly Father to give us the Holy Spirit? He wants us to know that he knows the hearts of all the those in, and condemns all those in the crowd who were seeking for a sign. He referenced himself as the son of man, as their son, telling them, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with his generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And, because, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its light. Raise. Essentially, don't look for anything or anyone else. Who you need, what you need is right before you in Christ. He wants us to know whom we are to fear. Not the Pharisees. I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He wants his people to know that because of Christ, we're more valuable than the sparrows. That if we confess him before men, he will confess us before the angels of God. However, if we deny him, we will be denied. That if we blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, we will not be forgiven. And that when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities to not worry about how or what you're to speak in your defense or what you are to say. He's telling this to his disciples. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And we can read Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 where this took place. The Holy Spirit told them what to say and they were beaten. And as they were beaten, they went out rejoicing because they had been uh, considered worthy to suffer for his name's sake. He wants us to know from the parable of the rich man who we ought to treasure. But God said to him, this man who had built large barns to store his grain and then said he was just going to kick back and take it easy. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he further told his disciples not to worry about seeing things such as your life, food, body, what you will wear, but rather your father knows you need these things. Seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He wants us to be ready for when he returns by dressing and girding ourselves with the gospel and by being faithful stewards who are found by our master as doing the very thing most pleasing to our master. When he returns, will we be found faithful? He wants us to know about biblical repentance, that we shouldn't compare our sin against one another's, that one person's sin is not more deserving of punishment than another, but that we all are by virtue of our own nature how we've offended a holy God, and unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. In chapters 13 and 14, more teachings on the Sabbath as the indignant synagogue official who publicly voiced his opposition of Jesus healing the woman on the Sabbath, who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, that the Sabbath is for the glory of God in healing a person from sin they being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Or when he healed the man who had dropsy on the Sabbath and then asked the Pharisees if they would leave their own son or ox in a well on the Sabbath or if they would immediately pull them out. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Worship Him. He wants us to have faith like that of a mustard seed. Though small as it may be, it's not insignificant, but pleasing to God. He wants us to know that we are to strive to enter through the narrow door, which is Christ and His atoning blood and imputed righteousness. He wants us to know about the parable of the guests at the wedding. Don't go for the high seat of honor. Rather, heed verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What about that parable of the big dinner? The invited guests, none of which came. They all had other things to do. They didn't want any part of this. So the invitation went out to the destitute. We are destitute and we need not refuse this glorious feast. He wanted us to have supreme love for Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that our love for Christ must be so clear, must be so evident, must be so unrivaled that it would almost appear as though we hated everything else in comparison to this love for Christ. Pastoral question here. Do we love anything or anyone else more clearly than we love Jesus? Are we ready to be his disciple? Isn't it helpful how Christ draws out from us who and what we truly love, who and what we truly value? The world says love and be accepting of all of these things. And Jesus says to love him with all of our heart, our soul, in our mind. Otherwise, we're not ready to be his disciple. Chapter 15, parable of the lost sheep. Oh, my goodness. He wants us to know the joy that erupts in heaven when the lost sheep is found. Christ is that good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. He will not stop till he finds you. And when he finds you, he'll lay you on his sin bearing shoulders and rejoice that you are found. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or from the parable of the lost coin, when the woman who lost this coin relentlessly searches until she finds this lost coin, calling her friends to rejoice when it's been found. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Or the parable of the lost son. He wants us to know that we are like this lost son who was given his inheritance early, essentially telling his father, I wish you were dead. Then immediately squandering every bit of this inheritance, left bankrupt. He wants us to know we're like this son who hired him himself out to the world. That we, like his son, lie among the pigs in our own sinfulness. That like the son, that regardless of how much we try to be filled with this world, we are left empty. He wants us to know that God is the one who makes us, to see, makes us to see our emptiness and that we are, in his words, dying here with hunger. He wants us to see that he is like the son's father who considers our helpless state, feels compassion, and runs and embraces us. But the father said to him in verses 22 through 24 in chapter 15, to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him 
and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it. This is Christ. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This Christ will have you. He will have you run to him. He also doesn't want us to be like the elder brother who became angry at these things due to his own self-righteousness. He wants us to take heed to the parable of the unrighteous steward. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been found faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He wants us to know what his teaching is concerning divorce and remarriage. A permanence view. Stay committed to your wife. Stay committed to your husband. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. He wants us to know about the teaching concerning Lazarus. When the rich man was in hell, the rich man wanted Lazarus to go to his father's house to warn them of this place of torment. But in chapter 16, verses 29 through 30, he said to him, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if, even if someone rises from the dead. What's so good about Moses and the prophets? They're preaching about Jesus. That's what's so good. They're not going to listen to them. They're not going to listen to someone else. He wants us to know these instructions, these strong admonitions that he gives for his disciples to not be a stumbling block. Even saying to them in chapter 17, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sends you, uh, sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, what's our response? Forgive him. Giving us clear words about believing faith. Saying in response to the apostles' request that their faith be increased, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. He wants us to know from the cleansing of these ten lepers wants us to know about this one leper he healed, the one of the ten who turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice and giving thanks and saying to him that even better than being healed of leprosy, that our faith has made you well. He wants us to know of his second coming. He wants us to take heed in these words and saying, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Again, one of the major themes that's laced throughout the Gospel of Luke, this parable on prayer in chapter 18, he wants us to be like that persistent widow who received protection from the judge. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Are we going after him persistently, day and night? He wants us to pray to him like the tax collector did. Standing some distance away, unwilling to lift his head, Beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man's what Jesus said. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He does not want us to be like the rich young ruler who thought he could do something to add Jesus Christ to everything else he had in life. But he wants us to ask the question of the disciples, 
then who can be saved? To which Jesus respond, responded, with man it's impossible, but not so with God. But with God, all things are possible. He wants us to see that God is the one who, like he did with the blind man, gives us sight so that we can see Jesus. Do you see Jesus as he is? He wants to say sinners, say to sinners like he said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He can say that to you today. He can say that to you right now. Today, salvation has come to you. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He wants us to be in this parable of money, faithful stewards of the money he gives us. Because it's a reflection, really, of a faithful life. It's all his to begin with. Will we be found faithful? Not only in the stewardship of our finances, but will we be faithful in all things. And finally, in Jerusalem, he enters. He was received by the very ones who would only a few days later cry out for his crucifixion. He wants us to know that his house should be a house of prayer, not a robber's cave. He wants us to know that he is that son in the parable of the vine growers who was killed. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the chief cornerstone. He wants us to know when he told them to give to Caesars what is Caesars and to give God what is God's, that we're to give God what is rightfully his, our very life. He wants to be clear, wants us to know that he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. He wants us to be encouraged by the widow who out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. He wants us to expect suffering. We looked at this last week, not as a judgment of him, but as part of his sovereign and loving plan and to, to be assured in our faith of his sovereign control in the midst of all of that. He wants us to be on guard, watchful because he's going to return again. And the best way for us to stay alert is to be praying. He wants us to see that during the Passover, he earnestly desired to eat with his disciples before he suffered. He took the bread, broke it, gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup saying, this is the cup poured out for you, which is the new covenant. He wanted his disciples to know, he wants us to know that he is the one who's greatest. And when a debate arose as to which disciple would be the greatest, Jesus wanted them, wanted us to know that because he's the one who serves, it's his kingdom. He is the sufficient one who sends out those who like nothing. He is the one numbered among the transgressors. He's the one who in the garden urged them to pray that they would not enter into temptation. He is the one who prayed with drops of blood falling upon the ground for God's decreed and revealed will to be accomplished for all of God's pleasure. Can any of us compete with this Jesus? Certainly no. Christ is the greatest. He wants us to know that he was not captured, but he willingly gave himself up without a fight and did so in his God-ordained timing. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. He is the one who was denied by one of his closest followers, Simon Peter. But the very one who would eventually be converted and restored and 30 years later would write a letter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, in which it was clear that Peter is still 30 years later basking in this great and glorious salvation. He is the one who before the council of chief priests and scribes eyeballed them and unwaveringly answered with all the power of God their question, are you the son of God with this? Yes, I am. He is the one who said he is the king of G Jews, who didn't give Herod his pleasure-seeking thrill of a sign, who was found by Pilate as having no guilt. He's the one whom the crowd angrily cried out, crucify him, crucify him. He is the one who was delivered over, not by the will of the people as thought by Pilate, but by the predetermined will of God. He is the one who asked God the Father to forgive them for they knew not what they were doing. 
He is the one who was obedient in spite of the incessant mocking. He is the one who had the authority and power and compassion and love to say to one of the thieves, today you shall be with me in paradise. He is the one who gave up his spirit and breathed his last breath. He is the one who died. He is the one who was buried in a borrowed tomb with a stone to securely shut it. Oh, and then we get to chapter 24. He is the one who rose again. Death could not keep its hold on the risen Jesus. He is the living one. He is not in this tomb. He is alive. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He's the one who appeared to Cleopas and another man. And then what did he do with them? Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He's the one who appeared saying, peace be to you. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet. It is I myself touch me and see for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he said to them in verses 20 or 44 through 49, these are my words which I spoke to you while I'm still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city. And you till you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is the one who ascended. Not sinned, ascended. He closes this gospel with. And they led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple praising God. This is our sermon. Get to know this Jesus. And let's worship him.